This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with designer Paul Sayre about the power of saying no to clients and about a meeting with Steely Dan that went off the rails. Stood up and said, guys, I quit. I don't work this way. And then right then, Fagan jumped up and just put his finger in my face. He's like, f*** you. There's some unbleached language in this interview that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Paul Sayre is a graphic designer who is probably best known for his book cover designs and for his frequent illustrations in The New York Times. Paul Sayre is also an author, and his latest book is a graphic memoir called Two-Dimensional Man. In it, he tells the stories behind his illustrious 30-year design career, and we're going to hear a few of those stories today. He joins me in our studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, where he also teaches. Paul Sayre, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Thank you. Paul, it has been almost 15 years since the first time I interviewed you on Design Matters. I know. How are you doing? It's been a while. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm wondering if we can start the show today by you telling us about something that I just recently discovered. 
It's about your Hollywood career that both began and ended with your role in the 1996 Winona Ryder film, Boys. (laughs) Um, I have a picture of that. Oh, my God, yeah. I found a picture here. Is a picture. Yeah, that's me in the background there. In the background of this film. Uh, I was an extra in a Winona Ryder movie. And, uh, yeah, I'm in a party scene. What can I tell you about that? I I was living in Baltimore in Baltimore at the time, and um, I'm pretty sure it was Dean Alexander, a photographer friend of mine down there who's still there. Dean, I think, had a party. And it just so happened that they were filming this movie in town at that time. And the... um, scouting person was at the party and she's like oh we need this party for the film this exact party so they invited they basically invited everybody at the party to be an extra on the film so it was like oh this will be interesting boy it wasn't it was horrible what was Um, horrible about it oh it was it was at this house in the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter they were filming this scene at two o'clock in the morning for some reason Naively, I just thought, oh, you know, cool. We'll just have drinks or whatever with Winona Ryder uh, somewhere. But that's, of course, not what it is. You're drinking drinks that aren't actually alcohol, and you're herded around like cattle, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're freezing your ass off. And um, you couldn't make any sound on the set, so you're having fake conversations with people with your lips moving and you're not saying anything. Also, people, newbies like me that were there, but they were professional extras. There were people who do this. And um, I was supposed to be in the corner at that party, like, chatting with this woman. And she just started kissing me. Uh, and I, f- I went, whoa! Like, I literally lost it. Like, I just didn't <laughs> expect that. I'm faking talking to her. And then she lays one on me. And I sort of, and then was like, cut! <laughs> Bring me some professionals. Uh, anyway, you know, that was my, so that was the just, end of my acting career. She was just career. crushing on you? and No, no, absolutely not. It was totally fake. Yeah, she was improvising. She was make it. Give it, you know, method acting. <laughs> Paul, you've said that you don't recall what specifically made you want to become a designer for a living, but you do have vivid recollections of growing up with three siblings in upstate New York and making art to try to stand out to get your mom's attention. Um, did it work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I also, I think I also wet the bed for the same reason, but we won't go into that. Oh, I was actually going to um, uh, ask you about that. You were like way, way into your early teens, yeah, right? Yeah, it was, it was not good. Um, all better now, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> when did you get this funny? <laughs> um, my brother, my older brother, and my younger brother were just. They were full on. They were they were a handful. I mean, but if if one family had one of those situations, I think it would be overwhelming uh, for the parents. Um, I mean, I have two kids now, and you know, any little thing that is rocking the boat and demands attention is just really difficult. You have four. Yeah, my dad was in uh, in the uh, Air Force, so it was a lot of like you know that ladles. You know, <laughs> dinner was all beans and stuff with a huge spoon. You know, um, <laughs> and we had crew cuts until we were. I had a crew cut until I was like seven or eight. You know, and he would just do us all at once in one afternoon, one to save money because it was quick. You know, so it just was super competitive. It was really competitive to get any attention, you know? So talk about your older brother and your younger brother and what was so hard for you to be the one that was standing out. And it wasn't, I mean, I guess it was nobody's fault, but my older brother was born deaf and with a learning disability. Uh, My mom had to 
case of the German measles, apparently. And at the time, it caused birth defects. Or, and so, I mean, that caused all kinds of things that, uh, again, weren't his fault. But um, they were – it was – yeah, it was hard to get any attention, I feel like, in some way. That's probably, in the end, the wrong way to describe it. But uh, – and my younger brother, probably in reaction to this, again, not consciously, was a, a such a troublemaker. I mean, uh, from birth, like he came out causing problems. So I really feel my sister and I were in the middle and we were the ones who were just like boring, don't rock the boat. You know, I just felt like if anything else was added to my mom's plate, my dad worked full time. He was an aerospace engineer. So he was off working a lot. And uh, I just saw my mom sort of trying to deal with the chaos, you know. And did she appreciate your artwork? She did. Uh, She encouraged it. Yeah, totally. No, I had a great childhood, though, though at the same time. It, it was, I think, from the outside looking in, it was probably pretty freakish in a sort of a mild way. But uh, to me, it just felt, you know, normal. Growing up, there were three different phases, as far as I can see, of the young and artistic Paul Sayre. In your early teens, there was the Paul Sayre who drew things like demon-eating human flesh, which now hangs in your mother's house right by the front door. Later, there was your Albrecht Dürer and highly detailed renderings of house pets, period. Tell us about the baboon named Wentworth that you brought to life in high school. Yeah, I thought I was—Charles I, Schultz, I— wanted to be Charles Schultz, you know, as a kid. I could totally relate to this person creating his own world, his or her own world, and sitting at a table drawing, you know. And I I read somewhere that he had an ice rink, and I played hockey, ice hockey, growing up, and uh, I just thought, oh, my God, I I want to own an ice rink. This would be great. Um, So the combination of just loving the comic book and the, the comics and the characters and just, just I could really see myself just sitting at a table drawing, you know, and then somehow making enough money doing that to own an ice rink. Seemed like the ultimate goal. <laughs> like there's nothing higher than that. And so when I was coming up with the character, I was at a certain age where I'm like, okay, I'm being strategic about this. Like um, uh, I'll do a monkey. Uh, I don't know. Are there any monkeys? There, you can't do a dog. You can't do a cat. Garfield was big at the time. Okay, what's something that has never been done? A baboon. There's no baboon characters. So it was a baboon. But I drew it through into my um, college uh, newspaper. Yeah. Until uh, And that was before Kent State, before I studied, learned what graphic design was. I went to a community college for two years um, in, in my hometown because I had a girlfriend who was a year younger than me who was still in high school. So I didn't – I wasn't leaving yet. And I didn't feel quite ready, I think, to some degree. So um, it was sort of before I went to design school and then that was gone. That thing went away. That went away pretty quickly. You sort of realize, oh boy, this is sort of embarrassing. Um, And I could probably say that about a lot of things in terms of my worldview before I went to design school. school Design school for me was a complete transformation on some level. Given your, your sports ability, your penchant for sports, what made you decide to pursue art? And how did, you, how did you balance as you were growing up this really intense sports acumen as well as being so artistic? It's a really unusual combination. No, well, it definitely was. I think that, um, again, you know, you mentioned the praise thing at the beginning, um, just kind of dipping back into your own past and trying to answer some of those questions of why you end up doing something 
or going in a certain direction. That was the only thing I could really come up with because I don't remember its genesis. I just know that I did it. I always did it. Um, it just became part of my identity at a, po- at a certain point. And I have very specific memories of the re- just that re- the refrigerator as like the ultimate place where your work can be, you know. And so then, if it made it on the refrigerator, well, then, then and I don't then even talk was. about that. But I also the walls. You know, yes. if you got your your work framed on your mom's wall, your parents' wall, then you were really doing something. You know, and then of course ends up biting you in the ass later. Uh, I've paid for that. I pay for it every single time I go back to my mom's house now because of stuff on the walls that I wish wasn't there. Uh, Especially your demon. Oh, eating. speaking of which, let me just say I don't I don't mean to um, go somewhere too quickly, but. You know, the book starts off with um, this drawing that, um, and it, and the, and the lifespan of the drawing, kind of giving me a way to talk about something that's sort of hard to talk about. You yes. know, do you want to do you want to tell that story? Well, I'll try to do it quickly. Um, so, the house I grew up in as a kid is in upstate New York. It's in uh, Vestal, New York, which is near Binghamton. Uh, anyway, that I was going up there to visit one day uh, a few years ago, and. Um, as I sometimes will do, I will get in late and then I'll sleep on the couch in the living room. Well, this time I woke up and I looked over and here's this drawing that I did when I was 13 or 14 on my mom's wall. Not only on my wall, mom's wall frame, but it's right next to the front door. Now my Can't mom, miss it. Now, my mom stylistically, she skews um, cute. She does needlepoint. She has a thimble collection that's on the wall in that room. And here's this drawing I did when I was like 14 that I now call Demon Eating Human Flesh. But it's a, a, a pen and ink drawing of a, a monster, scaly monster who's eating human flesh. He's got fangs. It's horrible. Um, it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, anyway, I cracked up. Well, I didn't crack up. I saw it, and it was immediately disturbing because my brother Angus, who's in the book, uh, my younger brother, the troublemaker I talked about, um, I went to design school. He went and joined the circus. And for years, he he was a camel trainer, caretaker, and then he moved on to elephants. Um, anyway, so he passed away in 2004, okay? It was not long after that that the drawing appeared on the wall. The drawing was my brother's drawing. He had taken it at some point. He thought it was super cool. And he had it on the circus train with him for years. It traveled with him. And so I sort of had the same experience seeing it randomly on the circus train above his bunk that I had in my mom's house. And he told me this. I would go and visit him on the train whenever the circus was in the town I was living in. And um, if you've – well, how many people have been on the – raise your hand if you've been on a circus train. It stinks. I mean it's – it's an animal smell that cannot be described. Anyway, so I'm there. I'm going to design school. Here's my brother, and I see the drawing, and he, he basically hands me a beer that also tastes like circus, and then he said, you know, this is the best thing you've ever done or would ever do. Like, this was the pinnacle for Angus for any creative output that I would ever have. And so, you know, whatever, years passed. He dies. It shows up on my mom's wall. The idea that this thing was on my mom's wall is terrifying to me because of some things I already talked about. You know, be careful what you wish for, one. But two, yeah, she doesn't understand what – she has no concept, as Angus really didn't, of what I actually do as a designer, what I've dedicated my life to, which I think I've gotten pretty good at. Um, 
But they seem to understand this drawing that I did when I was 14, so much so that she's willing to put it on her wall next to, right next to the front door. Well, you once stated that once something is created, drawn, in this case, the maker, while exerting complete control over its creation, has virtually no control over what it ultimately means to others, nor apparently where it ends up. Yeah, that's a hard thing for a graphic designer to admit to, I think, to some degree, because, yeah, design is a controlling experience, right? Actually, that's I mean, true. You're controlling a... Oh, I think designers think they're, they control everything about their lives, you know? I mean, and that's sort of the basis of the book for me. It has caused me untold troubles, Try, learning a sense of order, growing up in chaos, going to design school, learning a sense of order that I never knew before, and then trying to apply that new order to your life, which is not possible. Like, things happen, and it, life can't be designed. You were originally going to call the book Two-Dimensional Man, A Designer and His Problems. Um, well, it was just a designer and his problems for a while. But wait a minute. Before we get back to this, I just want to tell you something that just happened. So, okay. So you write this book, you know, while you're writing it. I don't know, trying to figure this out. Maybe I'm trying to just get my mom to understand something that she didn't understand before. I don't know. I, I don't think it was as simple as that. But anyway, so I had a similar experience where I brought my two boys up. Uh, I think my wife Emily was working or something, and I took them up to, to Binghamton to visit. And we got there late again, and I went to sleep, as I usually do on the couch, and woke up in the morning, and I looked over at Demon Amy eating human flesh, and it wasn't there anymore. She had taken it down. She had read the book. She didn't say anything to me about it. The only thing she did was took down the drawing and put something that should be on her wall. Frankly, it was like an embroidered flower or something, you know. And uh, I just started cracking up. Like, what the fuck? Like, what is that? Like, <laughs> she didn't say anything to no, her? No, I, I just started laughing and so loudly. And so the crochet loudly. daisy's still there? It's still there, and I'm just— what, Where's demon point, eating? I have no idea. I have no idea. And I think, you know, I just leave it alone. You just got to leave it alone. I think the story is so emblematic of the classic relationship between parents and children, knowing and not knowing, sharing and not sharing, revealing and not revealing, and having seen this drawing, I, I'm actually— formally and officially begging you to make sure that it's safe and sound and that you can give it to your boys. Huh. Hmm. Well, I didn't mention this, but he di died in my mom's house. He fell down the stairs drunk. Uh, and the only reason she has it is because he died in this way, in this house. But I did ask her about it when she had it up. Why this? It doesn't seem like something you'd want to hang on your wall. And she, she just said, oh, I just like it. I just like it. When you were determining where you were going to go to university, uh, you ultimately chose Kent State University. But from what I understand, you based it on a checklist in order of importance. And this was the checklist. A college with a good graphic design program. A college that would accept you. A college that was far away enough to prevent your parents from dropping in unexpectedly. A college that was not the University of Kansas, which was the alma mater of both your parents and where your sister was enrolled. But also it mattered to you that Devo went to Kent State, the band Devo. Tell us about the decision-making criteria here. 
I think I was also interested in a guy-girl ratio, favorable. <laughs> I um, missed that one. I didn't put that in the book. Um, I think if memory serves, my girlfriend from high school dumped me <laughs> at some point, uh, broke up with me. And um, so I stayed for two years at this community college. And by then, whatever, I was 19, I had to get the hell out of there. I mean, I had to get the hell out of there. So what do I do? Kent State is not a radical place to go to school. I thought, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna shake things up. I'm going to go somewhere where people care about things and people want to change the world, you know. Uh, that's not Kent State. Uh, Kent State's a very um, – it's a very conservative school now. I don't know. Maybe it already always has been. In, in an effort to make money while you were at Kent State, you worked at a car dealership hand-painting prices and catchy slogans such as, look, drive me home, loaded, loaded, loaded on cars for $10 a vehicle. And you were awful at first but got better. And you ultimately said that sign painting also gave you a different perspective on what you were studying at school. Um, in what way? So, yeah, it was just by happenstance that um, – the dealership called the School of Art and said, is there a student around who would be interested in doing this? So uh, Tanya, who was the secretary at the time, said, thought of me for some reason. I can't remember why. But she's like, would you be interested? I'm like, sure. It was uh, old school uh, sign lettering, but right on the windshield of the cars. Only on the left, if you're facing the car, only on the left side. So it would be like the price and two colors and sparkles or and then some catchy phrase like a real honey or, you know, whatever look with eyeballs for the O's, you know. But I got to know the sign painter who was doing them. And over time, I learned, uh, and it was great money. I mean, it was great money. I mean, it partially, I don't, you know, I didn't have student loans for long because of this. But, you know, I would be at school in a history of the Italian Renaissance class, you know, high-minded, um, you know, history of art class. And then I would go spend the afternoon painting car windshields. And, you know, you just sort of realize, well, well, this guy is really amazingly talented and seems to be enjoying his, what he's doing. And he's not, he didn't go to college and he's making all this money. And here I am going to college and paying to do this thing, graphic design, which, God, it took me a long time to make as much <laughs> with graphic design as it did painting these stupid cars. Uh, why am I doing this again? You know? Then you think about it a bit, and then you realize why you're doing it, you know. But well, why are you doing it? Why am I doing it? I think I'm doing it because it's a compulsion more than anything else. And if you're going to do anything well in life, you know, anything, well, forget well. Just if you're going to, com- if you're going to really, com- you got to commit to whatever it is. Um, even if you don't do it well, you got to commit. What does that commitment mean to you? How do you? What? Do, what is your version of committing? Oh, it's the most important thing. Like I. You know, getting back to your question, original question, why are you a gra- – I'm just a graphic designer now. Like that's how – that's – it gives my life a sense of purpose. You know, I get up every morning and say, what do I get to design today? You know? That's sort of always been enough for me in a weird way. A purpose, it gives my life a sense of purpose. Like I – I'm talking to you right now. I'm a graphic designer. But walking over here, I was a graphic designer. Watching a movie last night, I was a graphic designer. I'm eating dinner. I'm a graphic designer. And what does that mean? I don't know. You, everything is through that lens. Everything you experience is through that lens. And so is it a matter of so, visual curation? It's your is it point a of view. Of... It's your point of view, you know. So you can't turn it off, you know. I have been likening it to like breathing mm. is the best way I can describe it. It's like survival. It's like it's an automatic reflex, but it, you have control over it at times, right? But a lot of times you're just doing it. 
It's just it, you're not thinking about it. And it's it's it sustains you in all kinds of it sustains me in all kinds of different ways, but it's just who you are at a certain point. I feel like, um, and I was introduced to that idea in college, you know, um, from my mentor J. Charles Walker, who was head of the program there. He and his partner John Buchanan um, ran the program, and Charles lived. They both lived design. Their home they designed and built. They designed the situation they were in. They, he designed the program. And Charles was a modernist. So, you know, he every aspect in a way that I could, I could never do, I think I finally had to admit to myself. I mean, I just visited him recently. They have a house in Key West. And I was in the shower. And uh, they take all the labels off their – sorry, John Charles. They take all the labels <laughs> off of their shampoo and products. Yeah, that because they're ugly. Yeah. Sorry, Debbie, if you no, design no. any of those, but they're like, no, <laughs> no, I, th- you know, yeah, I do. And I was like, I'm not that bad. I say bad, but great, you know. Paul, you have a, a enough of a body of work now of, of really extraordinary work. I mean, you just came back from the Allianz Graphique International World Congress. You're one of, I think, 200 people in the world that are part of this rarefied group of designers that have to be voted in. It's extremely hard to get in. Almost no one gets in. I was rejected. Um, Many, many people that I know and admire were rejected. So there's no question you are really one of the great graphic designers living and working today. You've worked for the New York Times, for um, many, many magazines, many, many books, authors, musicians, etc. Why not a monograph? Why a memoir? Uh, I would say my answer probably has to do with just not wanting to rock the boat too much in terms of what I do as a designer. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, rock the boat. Okay, this right. is a, you mean you talk about bedwetting in uh, this no, no, book. I don't You're wanna, rocking the boat. I don't want to change the context in which I'm able to do the work that I'm doing. I'm very lucky to sort of operate usually in a situation where someone contacts me to do something. There aren't really specific expectations of what I will do. Um, you say no a lot. I do. Someone doesn't call me and go, I want a monster truck AMC Pacer you know, made out of cardboard. Like, that doesn't happen. So the project for uh, They Might, they be, might giants. be Giants, I'm referring yeah, we'll, to. we'll talk about that but in a I, moment. But I, I wouldn't want to do that. I would want to f- have an open, you know, situation to try to figure out what we should do and, and have the freedom to be able to navigate that any way I felt like it needed to for their sake and for mine, frankly. Because I feel like design really is half altruism and half selfishness. From my perspective, that a designer is responding to a situation typically, especially if you have clients, it's these aren't your concerns. They're other concerns. There's some situation. And so solving or figuring out that situation for a client is at its core sort of altruistic. You know, it's not about you. But then at the same time, if it was 100 percent altruistic, it would be horrible. I think it would just be terrible. So I think a designer has to be selfish, too. So anyway, getting back to the original question, I just felt like a monograph would would too easily make me somebody that somebody could say, oh, they do X, Y, or Z. Those expectations aren't there. The book is, is a remarkably well-written one. One of my favorite things about the book is actually the first line, which I'll read. During a recent visit to my mom's house, I couldn't help but notice it. 
Where did you learn to write? Did you take writing lessons at night? I mean, how did you get? I mean, it's not right that I you can do so many school. things so well. No, I did. I I definitely took you know through college. I had yeah, but that doesn't count. You're you're, no, you're know, a middle aged man. You no, can't no. go back to I your also, high school okay. and college writing lessons. <laughs> well, I'm just lessons? saying that's what it. But that's what it. That's my. Probably also, you ask why. I'm a masochist, you know, you know, like to a certain degree. I have no business writing a book like that. So, therefore, that's an interesting thing to try to do. Um, I was – I loved it. It was impossible and it was um, – that's so motivating for me too. I think that gets back to, you know, the no expectations or what are the expectations. When something feels like it's impossible or like you have no business doing it, that's when you really roll up your sleeves and figure something out. No, that's you know? when Paul Sayre rolls okay. up his sleeves right. and figures All something right. out. But, but That's so, not the way I approach life. <laughs> but uh, no, you know, it just makes it exciting. So the stakes are high yeah, and that excites yeah. you. Yeah, definitely. You structure the book in three parts, which run chronological to your life. Chaos, order, and entropy. How did you settle on these three elements as the major phases in your life thus far? Well, that was really with the help of a great editor, Gabriel Levinson. Um, and Gabriel, I didn't know before, but um, yeah, he 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 read what I was writing, and um, that was from him, straight up. And I embraced that because I feel like he, you know, he had a similar upbringing than I did, and um, uh, he got it, you know? Not everybody gets it. Like, he totally got it. What is it about designing books, aside from your own as as a memoir as opposed to a, a design, a cover design or, or a designed book? You do a lot of book design, a lot of covers, uh, Chuck Klosterman, Patton Oswalt, Rick Moody, Hemingway. What is it about book covers that you enjoy doing so much? It's a really singular design challenge because it plugs into a context that's very specific. And, uh, you know, I would admit to not being that interested or maybe not interested at all in the whole marketing side of selling of the book, even though the cover tends to be maybe one of the most – it's the most important kind of thing to sell a book. It's the visual, you know. I I think a book cover is more of as a door for an experience. You know, it's like an, it's an entry point for someone reading. And in that way, it it – that – function, if you will, of a book cover outlasts, you know, for the whole life of the book, the the initial concern I was talking about. Like, we got to get someone to buy this thing. Because every time anyone picks it up, it's the first thing they see before they start reading. And you're, you're, you're responding to something that is in, that's in a non-visual form, and you have to create a visual for it that, one, graphic designers don't have a captive audience. Sometimes we forget that. But we're not filmmakers. Everybody doesn't go into a dark room and stare at a screen. And so you have to grab somebody. You have to shake them, make them pay attention to this thing, and then then experience it from there, you know. Um, so in terms of book covers, that's, that, all those elements are totally in there, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you, it's got to relate, but it can't give too much away. You know, it's it's a... You know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of them, and um, I see myself not getting bored with that. I don't know. One of the things that I enjoy so much about your book is how candid you are about both the things that have gone well and the things that went way off the rails. Talk about your relationship with 
James Patterson. You you talk about the that you once had the misfortune of working on a James Patterson book cover. What happened there? Uh, I've always worked outside a publisher, right? So a creative director is at the publisher, and then they think of me for a particular title, and then they contact me. Well, in this case, Michael Ian Kay was a creative director of Little Brown years ago. It's around 2000, I think. And he was leaving, and he asked if I would mind if I would come in for maybe three months. All the people working for him were quitting, and then I was helping to create a, a new design team transition. So I thought, oh, you know, I've never been on the inside just to see what it's like. Um, so yeah, I three months at Little Brown, and um, I think Michael had told me before I left. He said, "There's, you're going to want to do all this stuff." But all, most of your time, 95, 96 percent of your time here is going to be dealing with the shit you don't want to do in terms of covers. There are going to be two really – two or three books that you want nothing to do with that are going to suck all your time out. And I remember thinking, Well, aren't why? those the books that generally pay for all the other books yeah, that are really fun to do? that's probably true. But anyway. That's the way Chip Kidd puts it. <laughs> okay. Well, he's, he's probably right. But what do I know? I, I was in there for three months. Yeah, so one of the books was a James Patterson book, and um, you typically, with all the rest of the titles, there was something to read. And uh, there was a very set um, stylistic uh, system that was already in place. It was an illustration, big type, whatever, you know. It's got foil stamps and, you know, um, embossed and anything to make it not feel like paper. So I contacted him. I reached out to him and said, oh, was there anything to read? He said, why would you need to if – you're, if you're selling a Big Mac, you shouldn't have to eat it to know how to sell it. That's what he told me. And I kindly thanked him for that input and hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully never, ever talked to that person again. Yeah, so that, that's my relationship with James Patterson. How did the cover turn out? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I was only there for three months. It went on longer. I don't know, whatever. They, they all look the same. It's whatever. You, you have um, a really interesting – relationship with saying no, you stick to your guns, you're very adamant about what you believe is right and wrong, and you share quite a lot of these stories, again, along with all the successes. Share the story, if you can, about working with Steely Dan. God, you're going to go there. Um, I would just say before I get into that, I don't know if that's actually a good thing. You know, the story I, I just told about my connection with James Patterson, uh, you heard my voice, so there's probably some disdain in there. Whatever. As long as I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> I mean, you know, good for you. I mean, the guy makes yeah, no, I money. Mean, I he probably loves a, what he does but on what's some interesting, level. You, you talk um, about these things very candidly. You never, I mean, though you might have disdain, you're talking about that now. You don't, it doesn't come across as disdain in the book. It comes good. across as... These are situations that you're likely to be in as a graphic designer, potentially to compromise your beliefs or to be really persuaded to do something that you don't want to do for the sake of commercial value. And and you're very upfront about what that does to a person and what it did to you and how you dealt with it. And I think that's really necessary in these times when we're living in a day and age where we're constantly feeling like we're being marginalized, Well, I, not I, just as designers. Right. Well, and I want to say, too, that along with that, I, I do hope the book is, is a way for people just to see how one person deals with it. It's not any way, any kind of roadmap I would suggest for anyone else to follow. You have to follow your own path, you know. So I'm going to reframe my question. Tell us about what happened with Steely Dan and then tell us now what you think about okay. how so, you handled that situation. Like most projects, um, 
I get, I'm lucky enough, I suppose, again, to have people contact me. I like, you know, people reach out to me to, for work. Anyway, got a call out of the blue. This was a, at a time when people actually used the phone um, from their manager. And uh, they want to see if I wanted to work on their latest release. This was about 2000. Of course, I'm like, cool, you know, a band. I'll totally do that. So I went and met with them at the recording studio. Super cool guys, Fagan and uh, Becker. Um, I was super young. I'm early 30s, maybe. Um, and I hadn't been in New York that long. And I just thought, oh, this is super cool, you know. I'm usually just in my studio staring at a screen designing book covers and not having any human interaction with people. So anyway, so I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we they hired me to do it. Um, we started the process, uh, maybe two or three meetings. They'd play songs in the recording studio for me. It was just really cool. So we got a cover approved, and um, I was sent away to design the whole rest of it. It was a CD package. So I went away. There was one thing that was a discussion about this. There was, like, it was a black-and-white photo by Michael Northrup of, I don't know, there was two people in a field, shadow of them. And then there was just some type that ran two against nature, Steely Dan, and it sort of ran across the middle. It was pretty simple, but it bled on both sides. And uh, they were like, can you make it a color photo? Can you colorize it? And I'm like, like an old movie? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, no. It's a black and white photo, I'm pretty sure. Let's, I mean, why would you want to colorize a black and white photo? Let's just reshoot it. It's a simple thing. We could totally do it. And they're like, well, why don't you see? But it wasn't like you have to, you know, do this thing. It was brought up as a question, and I sort of shot it down. And I, I went away. And, and so as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, I'm not going to hire him, some, somebody, Michael, maybe again, to shoot it again in color. Let me just show them what the rest of the package looks like. And then if they want to do that, we can totally do it. It was just such a simple photograph. So I go away. I design the rest of the stuff. I come in. And let's see, we avoided a lawsuit on the book so far from them. So <laughs> something was different. I think they were high is my suspicion. Like, I just thought something's weird. And they were just, they, they sat down and unlike these other meetings we had where it was very friendly and there were confrontation right away. Why didn't you colorize the photo? We told you to colorize this photo. And then they kind of went through the whole thing that I was presenting and just changed that, move that over there. They had a photo of the two of them in lab coats pointing at a chalkboard to put in there. I'm like, fucking way. I'm just saying to myself, that's not going in there. You know, like, like I wasn't even there just having a conversation about what they were doing with things. And it was just totally different than any of the conversations we had. They were, they, they, they were paranoid. They were, why did you, I know you changed this. You changed this photo. You moved this over. No, you know, this kind of thing. So I kept trying to interject, oh, but I don't know if we should, do you really want to do that? But this doesn't feel like, you know, this kind of thing. And then finally, I was just like, okay, forget it. So I just sat there. I probably sat there for 15 minutes. And they were just, like, pissed. And I'm like, oh, fuck this. And I just said, I stood up and said, guys, I quit. I don't work this way. And then right then, Fagan jumped up and just put his finger in my face. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Attitude. See what I mean? He looked over at Becker. And I'm like, fuck me? Fuck you. <laughs> and then fuck you. And it just kept getting louder. You think I was going to do any of that? You're insane. <laughs> Fuck you. And then so then next thing I know, I'm on the street. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? What happened in there? Oh, my God. It just exploded. Like, 
you know that something happens that's just you're just like blood is in your head and you're just like so mad and then it's over and you're like did that actually just happen you know so anyway that's what happened and now, um, in retrospect. In the end, I'm glad it happened because it was awesome. It's a hilarious story, I think. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in retrospect, you t- take on a project like that. You go in knowing that it's going to be probably difficult and you might not have total control over it. And the only thing I screwed up was how I quit. Um, I should have been able to keep it together and then quit later. Like quit, just have a conversation with the, the manager, like, what the hell was that? I think they were high. I'm not doing any of that. So if you don't want to work with me, that's fine. I'll even help you find somebody to finish this project off if you want. Um, like, that would have been a better way of doing it and just left with uh, – and, you know, who knows? Like, in, in the end, we may have, I may have been able to figure out how to not have it be awful – I love collaboration if, as long as I get my way, <laughs> you know. You've had a really long relationship now with the band They Might Be Giants. They saw your work in the New York Times and wanted you to do some art for their then album, Join Us, and you created an album cover featuring a day-glow pink hearse monster truck running over the band's name in Helvetica. That in and of itself is awesome. But it also led to a life-size version you built out of cardboard and hot glue, which you referenced before. You seem to be able to get people to do bigger things than I think they may have anticipated. What is the secret to the longevity you have with your clients and getting them to take risks? Well, I don't know if I really have that many examples of longevity with a specific client. I think this particular situation with TMBG is sort of unique in that way. I mean, That's, you've been working for a very long time with various publishers. You've been working well, yeah, with for a very long yeah. time with the New York Times. You've been working with for a very long time now with They Might Be Giants. Maybe you're right. Maybe I think of myself as always <laughs> alienating clients, so we only I only work for them once. Um, I'm kidding, sort of. Uh, well, They Might Be Giants is um, is a sort of a weird. Uh, you know, I teach. You mentioned I teach at SVA. I'm always graphic designers always have this internal need to feel that. If, if they could finally have a client that's something they love, then now everything will be okay, you know? I mean, most the fact is, most of the time we're designing as designers, we don't, our clients aren't things we may have known anything about before we started working with them. And may, hopefully then you, something develops there. And I've always found that when something is a dream client, it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> You're um, saying all of this with quotes, listeners. <laughs> I mean, well, around dream client. It's a, it's usually a bad idea, you know. Why? Why is that? Well, I I've got many examples. I did a project for years ago with Marvel Comics. It wasn't a total nightmare, but it just it's just like any other project, sort of, you know. But I, my expectations of it, because of my relationship with Marvel, I was very disappointed. I'll just put it that way. And the second project that, that I was working on was a book on Jack Kirby, the comic book artist. And he, he was a huge, he's you know, been a huge influence on me. He's a hero of mine. So I came into that project. It was a book of his work. And I came into his project with, I think, Mr. Kirby's best interests at heart. This was going to be great because of Jack. Well, the author came into it with that viewpoint as well. And so did four or five other people, the editor or whatever, and nobody agreed on what <laughs> the best thing, you know. And so I finally quit 
because it was just like, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be what I think it needs to be, should be. Um, and I was right. I mean, it's got tons of Jack's work in it, so it's fine. But the design of the book sucks. So how do you get the clients that you have and have had for a long time to really do breakthrough work? How do you do, how do you get them, how do you develop longevity with clients without compromising your spirit? I think in the end, it's not something that is a how-to. It just happens. That, that would be my answer to it. Because like I said, you, you had to even remind me that I had any longer relationships with, with clients. I think most of the time it's, it's, it's sort of sad, but you, you know, you're like, you do it once, you're like, boy, I never want to, you know, <laughs> it's, it's mutual, you know, this kind of thing. Um, uh, and so I think it just happens, you know, they might be giants, uh, it, 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 silly enough, it is the dream crowd project. The thing that I just argued doesn't ever exist because I listened to their, I listened to their music in college. Okay. I I want to stop for a second, Paul. We're going off script. Okay. I'm going to, you're being too self-deprecating. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Because. You do have, and I don't want people to get that people that haven't listened to your work, seen your work, or know you. I don't want them to come away from from this show thinking something different okay. than I know you right. are. Yeah, yeah. So I want it like that whole last part. Okay. What was the last part? Well, you, you you talk about you've said a couple of times. I don't realize I didn't realize. I, have, I mean, it's fine that you didn't realize yeah. that you have long term clients, but you don't just work for people once. I mean, James wanted you to work on his book again without, and you said no. So there's lots of things you do. So I you're well, you're being okay. way too okay. self deprecating. It's fine, but it's it's totally true. It's totally true. Listen, you can be at the top of your profession or, you know, seemingly at the top of your profession and it's still graphic design. We are not talking, you know. Yeah, but people do, not, you don't just work with people once. You work with people and, for but years Debbie, and years I will years also years. say I think it's a disservice to make people feel that graphic designers have any fucking power in terms of work we do. We have very little. I do it by backing out of situations. I don't get in there and throw my weight around like Frank Lloyd Wright or something. If you read anything about Frank Lloyd Wright, he sounded like an asshole. But he sort of had to be an asshole to get his work done the way he felt it needed to be. Well, that we're talking about lots of money on big commissions, they're big buildings, you know. A graphic designer is doing, to be honest about it, let's be a self, a business card. All right, let's use a business card. People are paid to do business cards, right? It's a fucking business card. But... For me, it's like the Guggenheim, <laughs> but it's a business card. It's not the Guggenheim. So, you know, again, like I feel like graphic designers a lot of times get into it with a false sense of what is going to be possible out there unless they're willing to be inappropriately demanding about something like a business card. You know, what's the big deal if the type's a little bigger? It is a big deal, you know? That's in there. It's baked into it. Right. So anyway, I'll try to be a little less. Well, I just, I just, <laughs> I just, I think I, I have a higher opinion of your place in design culture than you do. And I can understand there being a difference, but the delta between what you're... No, no, no. I, okay. All right. But it's yeah, just yeah. humongous. No, I... I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that you are... A designer, one of the few designers that sets their own rules and does work that is uncompromising, but also extremely successful. And there aren't many. 
And I could probably name all of them on one hand. And I think that that's something really special and and necessary. And there's something that all designers and all creative people can learn from that. You're one of the few people that is ridiculously uncompromising. To a fault, you're uncompromising. Well, you've told me before that you thought of me as an artist and not as a designer. That's true. I think of myself as a designer, not an artist, uh, no question about it. But, you know, again, you know, I have functioned as a sort of a, um, a free service to many graphic designers over the years who've come to my studio just wanting to know how they can do what I'm doing. Where do you find the guts? Where do you find the guts? I know that you maybe in the grand scheme of things would have wished you'd behave differently with Walter and Donald, Steely Dan, but you didn't. And where did you get the guts to say that? I've been in meetings, as you were talking about that, I remember being in a meeting at CVS, at CVS, and being talked to in such a way that I wanted to cry and scream and walk out of the room. And I didn't have the guts to do it. And I look back on that time and I think, I wish I had the guts to do that. You know what I tell everyone when they come and need me to tell them what the secret is? You need to go without. You need to quit the job and not have the money and maybe not make rent and barely freaking scrape by and sleep on a cot in a freaking studio and have a studio that's falling apart above a stinky Dunkin' Donuts that's infested with freaking mice. If that's what you want to know, that's what it is. And you have to have persistence and you have to just stick up for yourself and pay the consequences. And it's it's a give and take. So it was non-negotiable for you. And you have to work harder than anyone else. I only say this because, uh, again, I teach, I see so many designers have a false impression of what it actually is going to be and how hard it's going to be to do work that you want to do as a graphic designer because it's plugged into culture and society in such complicated ways, as you know. And it's not you just deciding you want to make something, you know. But as a designer, you need to have opinions and you need to stick to them. And so what is that going to mean in terms of what you're working on, how much you're getting paid for it, and how you can make ends meet in the end, you know? So a, a good part of the that self-deprecating thing has to do with that. I just feel like, you know, and when I tell these people who've come to me for advice, do you know how many people take my advice and follow what I do? I can count on one hand. Actually, I don't even need the hand. It's zero. <laughs> um, that's fine. People are very disappointed with the answer, but like that's it. What are you gonna? What do you want to do, and what are you prepared to do to do it? What are you prepared to sacrifice yes. to do it? And that's over. Yeah, it's yeah. over. That to do without sacrificing is totally. You couldn't have done what I have done in, I don't know, probably India or somewhere. You know, because the sacrificing we're talking about is not sacrificing. It's just what you're willing to not have. I've never been hungry or anything. You know. But let's just say I haven't maximized my earning potential, you know, and I'm totally fine with that. It's, you know, but I just couldn't do some of that stuff that you were talking about at CVS. Some of my early work experiences, I went to school. I was taught what it was to be a graphic designer. I made typefaces. I took my own photographs. I created all kinds of things in, when I was in grad school. I had the freedom to do it. 
and found something that I loved, really loved. I got out into the world and just thought, hey, you get a job. Well, I, the job was awful. The second job was awful. The third job was awful. My first wife, you know, like begging me not to quit these jobs, just miserable, you know. And then I finally had to get fired from my last job. And then I'm like, okay, this is what it's going to be. That no thing, you get a lot better at saying no. Over, I've gotten a lot better. I think a lot of it's just being in the right situation and being able to identify what those situations are. And early in your career, you can't do that. They might be giants just by having conversations. Uh, I told John Flansburg, who I talked to, who's awesome, by the way, that Steely Dan story. And he cracked up. And it's like, okay, this, is, this might be, this might work. Somebody else, somebody I might not, shouldn't be working with, was like, might have been like, ooh. I recently um, met with uh, Beastie Boys about designing uh, the book they have coming out. And uh, I basically told them at the, on that meeting, I said, look, I love you guys. I would love to work on this project, but you need to know that this is my book too. This, if I'm going to work on this thing, it's your book, but it's my book too. And you need to know that going in. Did you get the job? I did not. Oh. Uh, they ended up working with Connie Pirtle out in L.A., who is amazing. I didn't get the job for a number of different reasons. One, they're mostly going to be out in L.A. And so they really needed a place to work. And I don't even have a proper studio right now. So we were meeting at Pentagram, my, my wife's company, in their meeting room uh, because I didn't really have any even place for, to work with them. So it turns out that they were out in L.A. So I don't know it was that. I'm not saying it was that at all. We had a great, we got a great meeting. and I loved meeting the two of them, um, sort of heroes of mine, too, in a totally different way. But they end up working with the person they need to work with, you know? When I heard I didn't get the project, I was a little surprised. But then when I heard it was Connie, I was just like, oh, awesome, because they're in really good hands with him. Again, I just think things sort of work out the way they do, and you get better at being able to know who you need to be working with or how to even handle the situation when you're in the middle of it than I did with Steely Dan, for instance, yeah. I have two last questions. All right. A few years back, you said that you were still operating by your inner 24-year-old's rules. So are you still? No, I don't think so anymore. Um, and I closed down my studio uh, about four years ago. Well, you closed out this space, the but space, you have a yeah. studio. But I don't, just... I'm fundamentally working in a different way now where I'm not um, – you know, over the years, it's, it was very difficult to sort of operate under the model I was wor- working on because to have office rent in New York City – you know, it's in a couple employee, employee or two, you know, it's, it's it, it, doing book covers and illustrations. You got to have bigger projects. You have to have more money coming into the studio. So it was always really tricky. And so, yeah, at a certain point, and I think kids involved, you know, New York for me and my wife, Emily, were, and it's before we were married, but, you know, we both worked until two o'clock in the morning, maybe would take a break at 10 o'clock and go out to dinner and then come back to the studio and work all night, you know? And it was great, really great. And then just at a certain point, then when kids show up, you, you're not, you, don't do, you can't do that anymore. You don't, you don't want to do that anymore, you know? So that, I think that was kind of it. So uh, right now, I work at the top floor of my house. Um, and um, 
the boys are in the studio all the time. And it's, uh, you know, the priorities are a little different now. Has um, fatherhood of two young boys now, I think Harry and Eli are yep, nine. Yep. Um, has it changed the way you work? I mean, not the the process of working, but the the type of creativity that you have. I would say yes. It's a little less singular focused than it used to be. And I don't know if that's actually a bad thing. Maybe I'm kidding I myself. No, I think it's a wonderful right. thing. But, I mean, the best way I can describe it is I have a do not disturb thing on the on – the, it's a door in front of the third floor. So I have the top of the third, third floor. If it's closed, they know that I'm on a phone call or something. But pretty much it's always open. So they come up. You know, sometimes they come up and draw there. Sometimes they come up to show me something or tell me something or whatever it is. It's, the interruptions have been more frequent now that they're a little older, you know. That has to change your point of view and what you're doing on some level, right? I mean, I don't exactly know how. But, you know, you could say, I could definitely say by my old standards, I'm way more distracted now. That's an easy way to say it. But I don't think it's, again, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I don't think it's bad. I think it's like kind of good. I will say that they're, you know, you know, we're always looking for editing mechanisms um, in, in terms of who we're working with or for. But if someone doesn't like getting inter- interrupted on a phone call by a nine-year-old, they definitely shouldn't be working with me because it's going <laughs> to freaking happen, you know. Um, and thankfully, everybody I work with wants to talk to them, you know, maybe, or understands and isn't bothered by it, you know. So my last question for you. In late August, you tweeted, I just took a piss in Paul Rand's yard. You were, of course, referring to the late great American modernist designer Paul Rand, whose house is currently up for sale. Um, so what made you decide to urinate in his yard as opposed to the house? Okay, I, I, uh, um, it's true. <laughs> it happened. I did it. Um, we were em- Emily and I were up there looking at his house because it was for sale, and I think we just kind of had this moment where, like, should we be living in Maplewood, New Jersey, in this colonial house? We could be, you know, it was sort of the same price as what we paid for our house. Should we be living in this beautiful modernist house in Western Connecticut? You know, after thinking about that for five seconds, I'm like, you know, what? I don't want to live in Paul's house. I mean. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we thought, oh, I'd love to go and see it. So we went up and saw it. So I'm up there with the two guys, our two nine-year-olds, Emily and our new dog. And it's a long trip up there. There's no bathroom breaks. We get there late or whatever. And also the house is on seven acres. So taking a piss in Paul Rand's yard, it's not, I didn't do it in, in the front yard. I did in the yard, you know, and so did my two boys at the same time. And the dog did too. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the transparency. Everything. It was the. It was a wooded area on the side. But the tweet is just um, obviously sort of a just supposed to be funny. I mean, it's um, it's classic Paul Sayer. I love Paul Rand. I totally respect him. So that's you know. <laughs> That's what that was. Paul, thank you so much of for course. joining me on Design Matters, and thank you for thank creating you for such me. important and groundbreaking and honest work. Paul Sayer's latest book is titled Two Dimensional Man, a graphic memoir, and you can see more of his work at paulsayer.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.